It's Thursday, July 20th, 2023 from Peach Fish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. As we wait for a possible indictment of Donald Trump, it's hard to pay attention to any other news, to much else. But other bits of news flit across my consciousness. For instance, a bureaucratic error by the state of California may quadruple the wages of goat herders and sheep herders. They're using goat herders to chew the grass to eliminate potential kindling for wildfire. They're hiring Peruvians to do that. Turns out not too many Sacramentans are steeped in the art of goat herding. And these Peruvians, I believe the word for goat herder in Spanish is cabrera. These cabreras stand to make $191,000 a year. This was the bureaucratic error. It's supposed to be about a $50,000 a year job, which ain't bad for a Peruvian goat herder. Now you, if you're skilled at the art of goat herding and can get in before they correct the bureaucratic error, you can make almost $200,000 a year. And the goats get nothing. Another piece of news that I came across is the New York Times coverage of the wife of the Gilgo Beach Massapequa Park serial killer. She is apparently was unaware of everything that her serial killer husband was doing. She didn't seem happy. Neighbors didn't want to interact with her that much. She paid with food stamps, which is weird since Huerman supposedly made a good living. But this woman, I thought that this was weird, posted on Twitter complaining about the cold. She's Icelandic. Her family emigrated from Iceland when she was a girl. Who leaves Iceland? I guess maybe 50 years ago, that was a more rational thing to do. Moved to Farmingdale on Long Island. So from Reykjavik to Farmingdale, where she no doubt became a daler, and then posted on Twitter complaining of the cold. The story gets more and more bizarre. And finally, another little bit of news that flitted across my consciousness. Not so much my consciousness as my phone, an over-the-top alert from the New York Times, who needed to tell me that Wesleyan was doing away with legacy admissions. A very important story that they needed to tell me about. Wesleyan has announced no more legacies getting into Wesleyan. What does this actually mean? Well, Wesleyan has about 800 students in each incoming class, small liberal arts college based in Connecticut, and all official press accounts just said the number of legacies were negligible. That's the word that keeps getting quoted. But I remember Jock Sternberg of the New York Times wrote a book about the admissions process, and he followed, he embedded himself with the Wesleyan, yes, that Wesleyan admissions office. Very few would give a reporter such access. So I looked it up in the book, and it said that Wesleyan relatives, you know, someone with a parent who gave, make up 11% of each incoming class. So this means maybe 80 students were legacies. But really, they all say that legacies have an increased chance, but not a guaranteed chance. Many of those legacies, let's say as a rule of thumb, about half would have gotten in anyway. So we're talking about 40 kids. Thank you, New York Times, for giving me this over-the-top alert, because we needed to know, your readers needed to know, that 40 kids who would have been going to Wesleyan now will have to go to Franklin and Marshall. Huge national news, President Wesleyan, he was interviewed on CNN this morning. Everyone needs to know, those 40 kids, you're taking a half step down in the kind of college that will admit you. New York Times also reports that 
A Pew Research Center survey last year found that 75% of all people surveyed believed legacy status should not be a factor in college admissions. And the other 25% clearly wanted a refund on all the checks they've written or are Jared Kushner's dad. On the show today, in the spiel, I look at the recent unrest in France and compare it to the unrest in America and the underlying causes, both of which were police brutality and police killings of civilians. But first, The Best Minds, a story of friendship, madness, and the tragedy of good intentions is the new book from author Jonathan Rosen. It talks about his friendship with a childhood pal, Michael Lauder. Lauder ended up in a psychiatric hospital where he has lived since he killed the woman he loved. We discuss the mental health crisis, its origins, and how paranoid schizophrenia can lead a man of incredible intelligence and talents to thinking that his parents were replaced by Nazi clones. Jonathan Rosen, up next. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? In 1972, there was a book published by Wolfgang Huber, which encapsulates the thinking at the time about mental illness. Here's an observation. For the patient, there is only one programmatic way to combat their illness, namely the dissolution of our pathogenic corporate-based patriarchal society. This was but one reference in the fantastic book, The Best Minds, A Story of Friendship, Madness, and the Tragedy of Good Intentions by Jonathan Rosen, but one reference that sheds light on Rosen's greater project. Many excellent works of literature, memoir, nonfiction, use the personal as a way to talk about society. I suspect in this book, Rosen wasn't doing that. He was really getting deep into the personal, his personal interactions with a lifelong friend, but he could not ignore the societal. And I was so interested in what Rosen's exploration into the issue of U.S. mental health taught him. We'll get to the story of his friend, Michael Lauder. Jonathan Rosen, welcome to The Gist. Thank you. Great to be here. I do want to talk about as I teed up all the institutions, but you've got to tell me about Michael Lauder and how you met him and what kind of guy he was. So I met Michael when I was 10 years old, when my family moved to New Rochelle, which is a Westchester suburb. He lived on my street, or I moved onto his, a very short street. It was one block long, had about seven houses on it. Um, He, in many ways, and this is what was seemed so kind of perfect about our friendship in a, on paper was, was like me. His father was a college professor. My father was a college professor. We both loved basketball. We both loved books. 
He read, however, at blistering speed. I was dyslexic, although that was not known. Uh, His father, American-born economics professor who wore a leather bomber jacket and had a kind of booming Brooklyn manner. My dad had fled Vienna as a child and didn't even like the uniforms on police officers and was very sort of soft-spoken. But we became friends right away. He came over to introduce himself to me, I think, the first day I moved in. And we walked to the same school at the bottom of our block, and we played basketball at the corner, at the court behind his house where we went to elementary school. We went to the same sleepaway camp, went to the same high school, middle school, college, competed although I always thought of him as the hare to my tortoise. Um, (laughs) And um, we're just very, very close in those early formative years where you don't think about it as a friendship. It just is one of those, it's like an artifact, like a natural fact, you know? Yeah, and as you describe him, he was an unbelievably compelling, exciting, interesting, funny extroverted character, brilliant. Uh, No one could describe him without saying brilliant. You were uh, on the editorial staff of the school newspaper together. You went to Yale together. And what, did you feel in his shadow or more you'd shake your head and say, oh, that's just Michael? Um, I, I think I felt in his shadow in a kind of comfortable way because I did not like the sunlight when I was a kid, and I was very shy. He was not. He had an ego to match his extraordinary intelligence. And so what I, it was hard almost for me to distinguish between his, the speed with which he read, his ability, he had a photographic memory, to recite whole passages from books, uh, which was very helpful for me, because um, that way I'd get them sideways. Um, and his ability just to kind of insert himself into every situation. He talked to, he called my parents by their first names. He talked to them about Watergate. And he knew things. He knew adult things. Uh, and so I didn't necessarily feel like I wasn't, um, I didn't belong in his friendship. I felt I actually, I wasn't just the straight man, but I was able to receive the things he told me with a matching sort of appreciation or I had my own humor. We both loved to talk. I wasn't a fast reader, but I was a fast talker. Um, but I think I also felt kind of relaxed in a strange way because like, it's like when the skateboarders are behind a bus, you know, mm-hmm. y- you can just be in that air wrap for a while. Then of course, yeah. other things began to happen. Right. When did he first show signs of mental illness? You know, it's, it's an interesting question because uh, Michael and I both went to Yale. He graduated in three years. I graduated in four. Uh, in the course of that year, he'd been recruited by Bain, a management consulting firm, and, which was a new thing in that early 80s. Um, and it seemed perfect for him because you didn't have to actually know anything, but you had to be able to talk about everything with confidence. Uh, but in the course of that year, he began to become extremely paranoid. What's amazing is that this was only revealed after the fact. You can have a long, what's called a prodromal period before you develop schizophrenia, which is what happened to him. And so he thought Nazis were chasing him, driving cars, driving him off the street. He thought his bosses were out to get him. He thought the secretary occasionally revealed herself to have long, bloody fangs. And so in the, he, he left after a year and went to live in the attic of a house in New Rochelle to be a writer, which we both wanted to be. And I actually 
thought, ah, he's speeded up what was supposed to be the 10-year plan, make a pile of money in 10 years, become a writer. I thought, ah, he's doing it in one, even though he was dividing his time between writing stories and evading Nazis who had begun to escape from a thriller he was writing that he eventually burned. But it took several years, and it's extraordinary how much he could both present himself to the world and simultaneously drive back from the hootenannies he went to in Hastings-on-Hudson, taking back rows because he was sure people were members of a cult and pursuing him. You and the people close to him and the people that he loved must have, it dawned on them maybe at different times, that this was a serious psychosis and not something that he could handle. What Uh, You could talk about yourself or other people as parents. What uh, thrust that realization upon them? Well, um, for me, our friendship had drifted actually before. We we both got into Yale, and I really did feel think of myself as by a kind of roundabout way having caught up to the hair. But he said to me the summer before college, he didn't think he'd see a lot of me because I was just too slow. Um, And uh, other things had driven small little wedges, but... Uh, And I went to grad school at Berkeley, so I was in California. And my father called to tell me uh, that uh, Michael had had a psychotic break. I had no idea what that meant. And that he was in a locked ward, which was a shocking phrase, which I'd also never heard. Nobody mentioned the diagnosis, which eventually was schizophrenia. Uh, But it was clear from the fact that both my parents called me. It was clear from the fact that my mother, I could hear the terror in her voice absorbed, I think, from Michael's parents who had told her that he had become convinced his parents were replicas of his real parents. They were Nazi uh, replicas who had killed and replaced his actual parents but looked just like them and that he was patrolling the house with a kitchen knife and eventually um you know the, the the i think the police were you know i know the police were called and he was taken to the hospital in a very dramatic way but like all of that hit me in just a kind of shocked way because even though our friendship of course had ended in its initial phases, I was deeply connected to him. And the idea that something dreadful had happened was obvious, that it had happened to his mind, which was sort of my touchstone of high functioning. I, Even if I wasn't diagnosed having learning disabilities, you know, I was always hiding. His mind was just the most overt instrument you could imagine, always on display. And, and that's what brought it home. And then I went to visit him, and I saw, and I spent some time with him in the hospital. What year was that? 87. I, I, it's embarrassing to say it's, it's in the book, but I can't um, remember. But, but, uh, but in general time frame, I'm trying to establish, and I think you have, that this was after maybe 15 years after the movie version of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest came out and Nurse Ratchet was uh, you know, seen as this oppressive figure and the romance and narrative around uh, mental illness being somewhat romantic um, but also the treatment of mental illness as being unfair and oppressive had taken hold. By this time, I would say it was absorbed into um, the national consciousness or what would be the conventional wisdom. So with that in the air and maybe in your mind, you could tell me to what extent it was, when you you know had firsthand contact with the system of mental illness, what were your impressions? Well, the, the way you frame the question is, is appropriate because it sort of suggests 
a cultural transformation so ingrained that it, in the same way the counterculture ceased to be counter, an underst our understanding of mental illness had been so uh, transformed by the romantic representation of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, where actually the hero doesn't have mental illness, the, guy, the character played by Jack Nicholson. And, um, and the reason why that matters, actually, is because when Michael was then in a halfway house, he kept referring to himself as the troublemaker, the Jack Nicholson character. In other words, he didn't see himself as having mental illness, but then the whole, the whole scenario, the whole idea of the hospital was just a metaphor for the oppressions of the state. And when I went to visit Michael uh, on his, in his locked ward, I I'd be, was a graduate student in English literature, and you, you really couldn't be a graduate student in those days in the humanities without reading Foucault's Madness and Civilization. And what that book tells you is that all mental illness is a social construct created by the state to oppress and other people who uh, don't conform. And though there's lots of oppression and marginalization of people who don't conform, the idea that it was that Michael was afflicted by a social construct could not have survived three seconds of my uh, visit, and did not, in fact, because he was so obviously suffering from something very physical. Okay, so there's Foucault, there's French philosophers, uh, there, he's, you know, certainly very prominent among philosophers and intellectuals. There's Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who's making, writing legislation. There's Abe Fortas and Judge Bazelon, who are making the law. Is there an intersection there? Did the Foucault idea influence the actual laws and rules that America was governed by in constructing their mental illness apparatus around? Well, the... I would say the forces that shaped Foucault, who wrote his book in the 60s, shaped other cultural changes that in turn did shape laws. And what was so amazing for me, because I, when I began this project, I really knew nothing about all of these things, that things I might encounter in the classroom in graduate school turned out to have a shaping influence on not just on the way people thought about mental illness, but on policies that turned into laws that in turn shaped the culture that led to more laws. And so that by the 80s, when Michael became sick, it was obvious to everybody that something had gone terribly wrong because there were severely ill people visible and once they had not been. But the um, bureaucracies that had been created had been based on false ideas that would then become extremely hard to, to change. But I would just go back to say one thing, which is that long before Foucault, what was so extraordinary about this is how connected everything was. I always felt a little bit like like a conspiracy nut when I was working on it. It's like, you don't understand, man. It's everything. It goes, you know, it's not just Foucault. It's, it's you know, LSD was introduced the same year as antipsychotic medication, and one was called mind-expanding, and one suppresses hallucinations, and how can they both be given to psychiatrists? But even before that, psychoanalysis um, and the American heirs of psychoanalysis really adopted the Freudian idea, first of all, that all mental illness is caused by the same thing. So maybe you're neurotic because of repressed childhood conflict, but you're also psychotic for that reason. And so everyone suffers from what Freud called the psychopathology of everyday life. And so the idea of mental illness was 
completely transformed. It used to be a psychiatrist was called an alienist. The care of people with severe illness took place in big state hospitals, in asylums, and your job was caring for people who had an illness no one understood the origin of and had no cure. Once American psychoanalysis gained its real authority, which was after the Second World War, uh, because people felt there was a mental health crisis, because so many people had been rejected for instability or wound up being discharged, uh, once psychoanalysis got its hold, then the idea that you could actually be a psychiatrist, open an office, treat people formerly considered well, and ha um, have hours, you know, like a dentist, send your kid to private school and maybe have a summer house, really meant that psychiatrists were the first people to be deinstitutionalized because they didn't have to be alienists. They, they could minister to everybody since um, everyone was in some measure mentally ill. It was almost as if the ordinary state of existence was defined as a state of ill health that psychiatrists could help you overcome. The big losers in this, of course, were people with what we would today call severe mental illness, a term that's necessary to revive because such a small percentage of the population have severe psychotic disorders. And yet, and when people in the 60s decided that the conditions had become so dreadful in state hospitals, and when they were so appropriately grateful for the accidental discovery of antipsychotic medication in the 50s, that meant people didn't necessarily need to be restrained or isolated. The idea was we can release people, but the people behind that movement really had a psychoanalytic notion. And so they replaced state hospitals with what were called community mental health centers. And even that Orwellian notion that you're going to replace... The, the, the institution that cares for the most severely ill, people who may not know what's real and what isn't, will be replaced by health centers who really are treating everybody in society. And they were very loose with the language of prevention and cure. If everybody is potentially mentally ill, then helping everyone almost in a pandemic like a vaccine will prevent them from becoming severely ill. So the mechanism of public health applied to a non-scientific approach to psychiatry, which was psychoanalysis, even though medication gave it a patina of medical authority, um, this was a collision of, of two concepts. And, the, and again, nobody thought, well, who will make people who are released take medication if they need it? Who will care for them? You know, like that. Right. So there's, there's, there's so much there, and it was fascinating. I want to break it down a little bit piece by piece. As I see it, there was the correct idea that, you know, going back to Victorian times, there were these horrible asylums and they really did nothing for the people that we didn't know much. We as uh, the, the avant-garde of medicine wasn't avant-garde that much. We didn't know much. We didn't really help people. It was uh, very punitive. Those existed, that sort of restraint existed until through the 1950s, uh, until the development of actual medication. So, so far I've got that about right. I, I hate, I, I, it will make me sound like a dreadful pedant, but the one thing I, I think it's important to add, which I also had zero knowledge of, is that, in fact, the 19th century, it was, an, it was a very important act of reform to create asylums. And uh, because people were locked in basements and beaten because they were considered possessed, even in the 19th century, they were left to die on the streets. And people like Dorothea Dix, an amazing reformer, went around to every governor 
in the country to say, you need to create true asylum. And it was a genuine reform movement. They were built, there was a Kirkbride plan. They were vast, airy, light. It was believed, as people still think today, that cities were somehow inimical to mental health. So they got people out in a rural setting. They worked the land. And it gave them two things, even though there were no cures. It gave them time, which modern world doesn't give you. And it gave them what was supposed to be space and an envi- a safe environment. And in its early phase, it did the best that could be done. It protected them and it protected people from them. And if you think that a lot of people who might have had what we would call bipolar disorder cycle in and out of illness, people did not stay for as long as you might think. Then the country completely changed. But the snake pits that people re- began to call state hospitals, that was originally the term for the basements and poorhouses where we left people who we are now familiar with, more familiar with what had been a 19th century site than people were in the first half of the 20th century. And so everything gives way to its opposite. And I only say that because by the time we noticed how dreadful they were, they were dreadful, overcrowded, and there were other methods of care. The full conversation with Jonathan Rosen is nearly an hour long. We get into all kinds of deep, important, factual concepts, concepts that changed my mind. We'll bring it to you, Pesca Plus subscribers. This is why being a Pesca Plus subscriber is such a great value. You can subscribe to Pesca Plus or get the ad-free version at subscribe.mikepesca.com. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. I'm Dr. Megan Sachs. And I'm Dr. Amy Sloshberg. And we're the host of the podcast Campus Killings. Our show covers some of the most sinister crimes to take place on or around school campuses, or the cases we discuss have a school-connected theme. And with the new school year comes an all-new second season of Campus Killings, which will debut on September 16th, 2023. But if you want to listen to Campus Killings now, you can binge all the episodes from season one. Available everywhere you listen to podcasts. And now the spiel. America is a violent, violent country. Wealthy, evolved, innovative, but very violent. America is violent because there are so many guns, but also there are so many guns because America is violent. We're violent by myth, in our history, by our stock, who settled the country, born to rebel, in the words of one book about the Scots-Irish who populated Appalachia and the American South. We are violent. We are fearful. It is right to be fearful. This fear leads us to grab guns. Our laws allow us to grab guns. And the cycle of more guns and more violence plays out. Oftentimes, we'll see 
instances of rage in other countries that are comparable or sometimes worse than America. I'm not talking about Honduras or El Salvador, or what's going on in Ukraine or what was going on and this subsided to some degree in Yemen. Just look at our European counterparts. Police in France say they arrested nearly 700 people on the third night of protests over the police killing of a teenage boy. Friday night, over 470 people have been arrested. Nearly a thousand protesters were arrested in a fourth night of rioting. A few weeks ago, there were massive protests all over France. And it's been a little while, but now the dust has settled, more like ash because so many things were burnt. And I was able to go back and look at some of the statistics around the protests over police brutality. We had our protests, they had their protests. The differences are extremely fascinating, and they're big differences. So, all throughout France, in a number commensurate with our George Floyd protests of 2020, people, often black or Arab people in France, took to the streets. There was a national mobilization of tens of thousands of police to contain the protest. This was easier in France because the police are nationalized. And at issue was the lethal shooting of one teenager of Arab extraction. It was the third such lethal shooting this year. Three. There was a record 13 French people who were killed after not complying in traffic stops in 2022, and this year it is three. Most of them, and it's very hard to get accurate statistics related to race in France, but Reuters and the National Ombudsman for Race looked at the statistics of the 13 and several more and several more years before that and found that they were mostly black and Arab. I couldn't get anything more accurate than that in a country that is uh, more white than the United States is white. Three such killings in 2021, two in 2020, none in 2019, six in 2018 and 2017. And that, before then, is when they changed the law. So they changed the law in France to allow police to shoot at a motorist who is non-compliant. And especially last year, they did get a number of shootings. And there were protests at that time, and there were protests at this time. That is just one small form of police shooting. But all forms of police shootings and police killings in France are small. In 2021, there were, as I said, 13 shooting, shooting deaths uh, by police who have stopped someone in a car in France. Overall, the total number of deaths during police operations in France, 37 in 2021. That's according to the police regulator IGPN. Now, the United States has five times the population of France, but we don't have five times the number of deaths during police operations. We had 1,147, according to the mapping police violence count. That's a little higher than the Washington Post count. But we are a country with five times the population and 30 times the police killing. Why? It is because of the guns. France, the murder rate is 1.2 per 100,000. And in USA, the murder rate is seven, higher than seven in the last couple years per 100,000. So when a French police officer stops someone, there's almost no expectation that that person will have a gun. There is also 
many French police, certain units go armed, certain units don't go armed. In general, they go armed. But reaching for a gun is given much less often as an excuse or a reason, an explanation for police shooting at a suspect. But I do have to come back to the idea that France has one-sixth the murder rate of the United States. And they have one-thirty-first the police killing of civilian rate, as does the United States. And it's all because of guns. It is all because of the amount of guns in society. You may have read things about how U.S. police forces are descendants of slave patrols. That is true in the South. It is not true of the oldest police forces in the United States. But of course, the legacy of chattel slavery and having a gun and having people who live on your property, who given the chance would kill you, certainly convinces many people and has for generations in the United States to get a gun and the Constitution enshrines that. And none of that is true in France, even if slavery in their territories was allowed up until and through the time of Napoleon. Actually, I probably shouldn't say up until and through the time of Napoleon. It was stopped before Napoleon, then he brought slavery back. And it was only a couple of decades, really less than 20 years, that France ended slavery before the United States, but mostly it was done in the colonies, almost entirely in the colonies, not in France proper. But it is not in France Though they have oppression, though they have police brutality, though the police in France do not act as protectors, you know that argument about the guardian mindset versus the protector mindset? I will uh, read you a quote from a European policing expert in Le Monde. If the police are more respected in Germany, Scandinavia, and England than in France, it is because they are respectable. Pacification and de-escalation are not the fruits of our neighbors, meaning Germany, Scandinavia, and England, are not the fruits of our neighbors' different cultures, but of depth work on limiting the use of force. So there we go. There we have the picture. We have laws that allow the French police to shoot. We have the French police shooting. We have the French police shooting and killing disproportionately black and Arab people. But in terms of the numbers, in terms of the sheer numbers, it is but a small, small fraction of what we see in the United States. Biggest difference, it's not the race, it's not the history, it's not the training of police, it is the guns, it is the threat of guns, it is the rational expectation that a gun will be involved. And what about the protests? What about the protests of police killings? According to the Armed Conflict Location, an event data project, very authoritative counter of those sort of things, conflict uh, location and events. In 2020, in more than 9,000 American demonstrations, about 25 people in the United States were killed. Some were Trump supporters, a couple of police are actually off-duty police. Some were protesters killing each other. Some were protesters killed or who died as the result of being in protests. France, zero. Again, a smaller country, a fifth country, but protests were proportionally just as prevalent in France as they were in the United States. There was no killing. Why? Again, no guns. The question that there is no answer for, the driving question for me in the last couple of years is this, the question of all of society. Is reality so bad, or do we just have information to convince us that it is so? Because there is bad reality out there, climate change and global warming, and the fact that 1,147 Americans were killed by police in 2021, the year I quoted, that's all bad. But when you compare ourselves to France, I get some insights. One, comparatively, things, though they seem on fire then, 
are so much better in France. It's much better to be even an oppressed Arab Frenchman than your average black American who has no involvement with crime or guns. That's point one. But point two is, and this very much gets in the way of the analysis, are things bad or just has our technology convinced us so? Number two is that the expectations of a citizenry of a populace are just as important for what upsets them as the reality. So France and Frenchmen and French women look at their culture and they actually believe and buy into these concepts of liberté and égalité, right? I don't know about the fraternité given the protests, but they believe it. They expect as French people, they will not be shot and killed and oppressed. And when some shooting and killing and oppression disproportionately meted out by ethnicity occurs, they don't want to take it. They can't take it. And that is a constant. What are your expectations? What do you do when the expectations are not met? And how do your unmet expectations express themselves? In France, with their history of protest, this is how they express themselves. I don't know if any reform will happen. Maybe it will be a counter-reform to do away with that law about shooting motorists. But I do have to say, even given the protests, even given the oppression, if you ask yourself some sort of question, as John Rawls did about a person being randomly born into society, you will be oppressed here, you will be oppressed there. You have a much, much, much lower likelihood of being shot and killed in France. I don't say that to the French as a means of consolation. It is just a fact, and maybe Americans hearing it can say, man, we've got a long way to go even to get to a society that was, as of a few weeks ago, burning itself down in rage. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, G-peroo, do-peroo, and thanks for listening. <laughs>